Hey, what is up? Welcome to episode 338 of the Entrepreneur to Entrepreneur podcast. I'm your host, Brian Lofermento. And I'm your guest host, Nat Harward. And this is a Strategy Wednesday episode called Lessons I Learned from Clay Christensen in Memoriam. I am very, very excited for this one. I am very much a passenger in this episode. Let's dive in. Boom, 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 boom. So this episode definitely, definitely is sparked by a solemn and somber event that I'm going to let Nat talk to you about in just a second, but I just want to preface this episode by letting you know that the entire reason why we are doing this episode is because I know personally the deep respect and and adoration that Nat has always had for Clay Christensen's work. So Nat, when we heard the news recently, I, I was really quick to reach out and say, dude, let's let's talk about the top lessons that you've learned from him. So Nat, yeah, this is I, your episode. I appreciate you doing that because I, um, you know, as you indicated, there is a warm place in my heart and in my brain for him, uh, for his ideas, his theories and things that he contributed and the fact that uh, he was my first client and really helped get uh, my entrepreneurial journey rolling. There's just so much feeling there and, and with um, his passing uh, quite unexpected. Yeah, there's just a lot there. So I appreciate you, um, your invitation, you know, to have this, this episode. So anything further or we just just dive in no i mean like i said i'm purely a passenger here because nat has intimate knowledge and workings with an incredible business thought leader who's respected worldwide by the way yeah i was gonna say maybe just some quick background for those of you who don't know so uh clayton m christensen those who are familiar with him he liked to just be called clay so i'll refer to him that way he, um, for years, was a business professor at, at Harvard, and what he's most famous for is developing uh, a theory, a uh, business theory called the theory of uh, disruptive innovation, where he studied technology companies, um, particularly from, I don't know if it was, it was like late 70s, but the 80s and early 90s, where he just kept seeing all this turnover of which businesses were the biggest uh, in the industry. And then a few years later, they'd be gone. And, um, I know there's a lot of ways to summarize this theory. My way of summarizing it is that, um, these big companies would just pay attention to their biggest customers, the most advanced, like the, the most complex technology that they could come up with and ignore possibilities downstream. And then smaller startups would say, well, we can't compete with these big guys. And, um, but we're going to make something that's kind of similar. It's not as good, um, but it works for some people. And so they'd make something smaller, cheaper, definitely inferior. But the fact that they made that um, meant that it could be used by more people since it was cheaper. So it opened, it expanded consumption. Um, and then just because they succeeded in meeting the demands of more people, 
and also slowly improving their own product that eventually it got to be good enough uh, that it would replace the technology that had been at the top of, um, of the industry. And so this just kept happening over and over and over again. And finally, some people figured out what it meant. Probably the best case um, or way to illustrate it is Intel with their chips. You know, there's Pentium 1, Pentium 2, Pentium 3. So the pattern would be Pentium 4, Pentium 5, Pentium 6, and just keep getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And then Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel at the time, um, got a hold of this technology. He read uh, Clay's book called The Innovator's Dilemma and invited Clay to come and talked with him and his employees. And what came of that was that Intel said, okay, instead of only chasing the fastest chip problem, um, let's also make a chip that's slower and cheaper, but that works on simpler devices. And so that was the whole Celeron series. And like when I was a kid, I loved reading through technology um, catalogs, like Best Buy or, you know, whatever micro center circuit city, whoever, you know, just cause I was like, Oh, how fast are computers now? How much memory do they have now? And I remember when the Celeron chip came out, I was like, what, why is this slower? What? I don't understand. I don't, you know, I don't get it. But the fact that it was cheaper meant that they could sell more computers to more people who weren't previously buying computers. So they needed a computer for a simpler purpose. Um, but that, you know, is, is one innovation that, uh, Intel, um, did and it allowed them to stay in business and still be in business now rather than someone else saying Intel's only like making the super fast chips but there are some people that don't actually need a super mm. fast chip they need a simpler chip um, and and so because Intel did that themselves then they're still in business rather than being upturned by by someone else so I guess that wasn't really a simple explanation but anyway that that is the actual business theory from that the word disruption kind of got became a, a buzzword and you know even clay kind of lamented on that of every tech startup was like oh we're disrupting mm-hmm. an industry and you know that disrupt conference that TechCrunch puts on and everything so there's a lot of ways that people use the word disrupt and sure just as a pure word in english it's fine to do it that way but with specific regard to his um theory in business disruptive innovation um, you know, there's narrower parameters to it. So anyway, that was, that was the main thing that he developed. Um, and it impacted a lot of people. And then, I mean, lots of other ideas and just his example as an individual, as a family man, who's a really wonderful person um, to be with and to work with and, um, many things to contribute. So that's some, some background there. And I've got, um, 10 lessons I learned about life and business, primarily business from, from clay. And uh, we'll just roll through those. Heck yeah, I'm excited. And I have not seen this list, so I'm as excited as you, the listeners. Take it away, Nat. Number one, it helps to be generous. Um, that was just a wonderful thing in interacting with Clay. I mean, here I was still fairly young, pretty early in my career, had not done anything completely on my own. Um, his, he had reached out to his daughter-in-law for help with a project. She said, you know, I'm full, but you should talk to my friend Nat. He knows how to do this stuff too. And he was willing to, um, take a chance on me and just trust in her and give me some attention and some resources and some direction and trust me to, to roll forward with things. And I saw that with everything that he did. He just has 
um, a generous spirit. Anytime anyone was talking with him, um, they felt like he was really listening and he was really trying to learn something from them. I read a little memory that someone had shared. They said, uh, every time I'd share an idea with Clay, he's like, oh, that's so great. We should write a paper on that. You know, just really generous with his praise and encouragement. And, you know, for someone as tall and powerful and smart and successful as he was, he definitely had the option to kind of push people away and be stingy with his time and his attention. Um, but it really made the difference for those that knew him. And I think for his ideas to go forward and, um, you know, and for the strength of his family and the character of his kids and everything of just his generosity. So I, I got to experience that. And I think, um, yeah, maintaining a spirit of generosity is, is paramount regardless of where you're at in life. Yeah, for sure. Number two, follow your own rules 100% of the time. Um, which also means that you've got to make your own rules before you begin the great story from clay. Um, you know, we, uh, go to the same church and have a common faith background and, and, um, honoring the Sabbath day is important to us. And so he had a principle with that, which was that he wouldn't compete in sports on Sundays. And when he was in Oxford in graduate school, he played on their basketball team and the championship game of a tournament was on a Sunday. And he said, you know, sorry guys, I don't play on Sunday. And they won the game anyway, <laughs> which he joked. And he was like, well, I guess I wasn't that important. He was the center. He was like six, eight or wow. I think so pretty tall guy. Um, but he had made that decision ahead of time. And so it was easy for him to hold to that. And then I remember, um, him talking about when he started his working career that, um, you know, there's some, I think he was at Boston consulting group or something and said, Oh, we've got to have this team meeting on Sunday. And he's like, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's the day that I've already given to the Lord. So we'll have to do it another day. And they're like, all right, well, we'll do it on Saturday. And he's like, Oh, well, because I gave Sunday to the Lord, then Saturday is the day to my family. And I've already given that. So we're going to have to do another day. And they just worked with that. And, um, and he shared lots of examples of people who, you know, once they, gave up uh, an inch with their principles, then it was just so much easier for them to give it up any time in the future. Um, I know that that takes a lot of work to really think about what's most important to you. And, you know, it is life and life can be messy and you've got to compromise and work with people and everything. But I think you got to do some work to um, really think about your core values, the things all the way at the bottom of what you believe and that are important to you. Uh, that are just non-negotiable and know those in advance and think about, okay, if these are my principles, then what does that mean in life? And, and then be willing to stick to them. Um, yeah. Cause if, if everything is on the table all the time, then that's when you end up in sticky situations or going down paths when you're, you know, really far down it and in jail or divorced and you know kids won't talk to you and life in shambles and lost all your money you know any one of those things where you feel like you're scraping the bottom of the barrel you're like how did i get here probably you can trace that back to a series of decisions that you just compromised something yeah and then you compromised again and again and again to use the opposite example i'll one thing that i'll, I'll carry with me for my entire life was an in-person speech that i saw when i was 
what, 19 years old? I was a sophomore in college. And Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, his first ever speaking gig when he got out of prison was at my college, Bentley University. And so I went to that, obviously. It was a big deal when he came to campus. And when he opened it up for Q&As, he's got an incredible life story, built a hugely successful Wall Street firm. All of it was a fraud. Everything came crashing down on him. He was screwing so many people out of billions and billions of dollars. And one of my classmates just raised his hand and he said, Jordan, what happened? And you know what Jordan Belfort said? I'll never forget it in my whole life. He said, well, I had a list of rules that I used to follow. And I stuck my foot on the other side of those rules one day. And I looked around and nothing happened. So I brought my other foot onto the other side of the rules. And nothing happened again. And before you knew it, I was so far gone I couldn't even see that line anymore. So, yeah, definitely sound advice. Well, I haven't heard that story. But, yeah, I, I think anyone who's in jail or, you know, has done something terrible where they now regret it they you know in a moment of self-reflection will probably see the same thing that that there was a line and they either knowingly or unknowingly crossed it you know quote-unquote innocently or oh no that'll be fine and then just got too comfortable um this one's straight business uh i should have looked up the podcast episode because we talked about it once before is that there are three types of businesses and that's the solution shop a value add business or um, a facilitated network and go and listen to that episode to find out more about those. But yeah, learning from that, it's like, okay, there are three types of businesses. And so you need to pick which one you are and then price package and deliver your services accordingly. Cause if you, I mean, this is just basic strategy. Like if you have one strategy, but then you apply tactics that only fit for other strategies, then you're going to lose. So it's like people have already figured out how this works find out which bucket you fit in and just play that game. Don't like say that you're playing basketball or don't get a basketball and then try and play it on a soccer field. It's like, it's a whole package and figure it out and, and you'll be more successful with that. looks like you yeah. looked it up. Did you find the number? Yeah. Super important episode again to reiterate as Nat talks about in episode 290, that's two nine zero. There are three business models. This is a concept coined by Clayton Christensen. So episode 290, the three business models. If you don't know which business model you are, as Nat said, you're probably going to be playing by the wrong rules, playing with the wrong tactics. Make sure you go listen to episode 290, the three business models with Nat Harward. Cool. Lesson number four, don't be afraid to look downstream. That's the whole thing from disruptive innovation is that Um, people lost because they were only looking upstream. They were only looking to bigger customers, uh, more, you know, uh, higher dollar value accounts, faster stuff, just better, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. But um, there's a whole, I remember this book title, I haven't read it, but I think it's something like fortune at the bottom of the period, uh, bottom of the pyramid. Hmm. It's like, there are so many people on the planet. Like, yeah, sure. There are people who are buying and consuming up at the top, but if there's that many up there, think about all of the people further down who might not pay that much, but they'd pay something for something similar. So, uh, yeah, don't always, uh, don't always think about looking upstream. Think about looking downstream and how you can serve people in a simpler, cheaper way. Number five, stick to your strategy, have it written down so you can come back to it. Uh, I remember hearing and reading stories of, you know, Clay presenting his ideas Uh, his theories and then people 
asking him a question of like, well, what do you think about this? And he'd always say, well, let's look and see what the theory has to say about this. Um, is the theory is the strategy. It's like, this is the way that we've decided that we're going to look at this and how to operate. And so rather than asking yourself like, Oh, what do I think about this? You've already made a decision. You've already committed to some strategy. And so again, it's like, it all comes in a package. So if you have a strategy, but then you start thinking outside of the strategy and come up with an answer or solution or a game plan that doesn't align with what you've already done, you're going to go astray. So, um, when you have questions or people ask you questions, go to what strategy you already decided and see what the strategy has to say about that question or that possibility. Number six, when you are facing what seems like it could be a tough conversation, look for what you can decouple. That's the word I picked up from is decoupling. Um, I helped him launch a book that he wrote about sharing your faith with other people. And one of the topics that he covered was, well, how do you talk about your faith in a professional setting? And he said, or introduced this idea of decoupling where there are kind of two things going on um, and people might think that they're attached to each other. But if you decouple them, then you kind of free them from worrying about one of the concerns and then they can focus just on the one that actually matters. So if you're talking with a coworker and there's some reason to share your faith with them, you know, you could say, now we're coworkers and I'm going to ask you something. Um, and I want you to know that like, whatever you say is not going to impact our working relationship. Mm. This is just in, a, in another domain. So I'm curious, you know, what do you think about this? Or would you like to come to this activity in my church or whatever? Um, and so that's a, a great principle. And I think when we fear having conversations, it's because there are two, three, or, you know, multiple things that we're lumping together. And even though there's different outcomes for each of those topics, we think that they're tied together. So there's option like one, two, three, four, five, um, or areas one, two, three, four, five. And each of those has four options, but we think, Oh, just cause I chose the first option. Then that means all of these other options go with it. Um, but if you just speak to what those things that seem like they're in conflict are and separate them or say, it might seem like we're talking about this and this, but we're really only talking about the second piece, then that will give you some freedom in conversations. I dig that. And it also, <laughs> a core part of how I believe entrepreneurs have to function is removing pressure from ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's something we're all great at and decoupling, it's simple. When you first said it, I was just like, I'm not exactly sure I know what decoupling is. But it is that is we just assume one decision that we make inevitably leads to X, Y, Z. And chances are that's not necessarily true. So definitely dig that simplification. Mm -hmm. All right. Number seven, use your entire life at work. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, again, from our faith perspective, Clay would say, there's a lot that uh, we learn in our church experience of how to interact with others and how to put on events and carry out programs. And so when you're faced with stuff at work, if you see things that are overlapping or principles that you've learned from anything else that you've done in life, don't rule it out just because it's wasn't strictly a professional setting where you learned it. Like we're all humans 
and we're all involved in all these different things. So if you have an experience or something you believe or something that's important to you, then, you know, share that. Just have everything that's valuable that you have be on the table as a contribution for everything that you do. I dig that. I actually... By and large, I attribute and Nat, you and I, we talk all the time about like things that we're thankful for that we've gotten competent at over the years. I attribute most of my success simply to my ability to link external things outside of business to my own business. Whether that means I, when I go outside and I'm on the tennis court, I equate the lessons that we learn on a tennis court to holy cow, this is directly applicable to business. Or if I'm sitting there watching a guy wash my car and I'm just like, that dude cares so much about this car wash that I will forever come back here and I extrapolate that into my own business and I want to be the guy washing your car and making you look on with admiration. So things like that and also on a completely separate note, I mean friendships, relationships, everything can extrapolate back into your business. So just look for those patterns. Don't leave things in silos. Absolutely. And that, I mean, yeah, ultimately it's if you have something to contribute that's valuable, then contribute it and there's no reason to, to judge or discriminate on where that lesson or where that experience came from. Number eight is forgive. You know, business can be tough sometimes. People do stuff that feels like either they literally cheat us or it feels like we get cheated. Um, but you just can't hang on to that stuff. Uh, Clay was really great and mentoring um, people that came to him or coworkers or others that came to him to seek advice on some challenges. And um, on, you know, more than one occasion, he would pull out the scriptures that he kept at his desk and just have people read passages about forgiveness and say, you know, and then, then ask the person to kind of look at the, their situation again and realize like, yeah, you know what, like my life and all of this will be so much better if I just forgive this person and keep keep going on. Um, I think business decisions that are driven by uh, spite or malice or revenge, I mean, you might get a little something from it in the short term, but I think you're always going to end up burning a bridge or kind of closing off a big part of the world as you go down that path. Um, I mean, yeah, it's just no way, no way to live. It's, it's a, an energy that you and your business would put out into the world that w- would attract kind of the wrong kind of stuff that you'd want long term. Um, I think in business, likes attract attract more often than than opposites, and so if if that's what you're putting out there, then you're going to attract people who have or who are also driven by malice and spite and revenge and you know getting justice on their own terms and. I wouldn't want to be on the the other side of that. Yeah, for sure. Your vibe attracts your tribe. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Number nine, strive for as big or small an impact as you wish. But remember, remember that what matters is individuals. There is no such thing as human accounting. And what do I mean by that? This is what Clay said. He said, Listen, when we get to heaven and we get to interact with God, uh, you will find that God doesn't have to do any accounting because his awareness is infinite. And so every single individual thing, every single individual person is something that's in his realm of awareness and understanding. 
the reason why we humans have to group things is because our capacity to hold things in our awareness and in our memory is limited. So you can't possibly hold in your consciousness at one time every single business expense that you had in a year. So you know, instead you lump them uh, and you say, this is what we spent on rent. This is what we spent on technology. This is what we spent on subcontractors. This is what we spent on whatever, you know, that's accounting. All of these individual things get grouped and that's how we think about stuff. Now that's fine with numbers and with material assets and stuff, but it becomes problematic when we start interacting with other people that way and we group whole groups of people together and treat individuals as if they're just part of a category. And Clay's big thing um, was saying, you know, the way that I live my life is such that when I get to the other side, I feel that I will only be held responsible for and God will really only be interested in the individuals that I interacted with and how I touch them and improve their lives and the impact that I had on them. So while he was world famous and had, you know, millions of copies of his books sold and all of this stuff, Clay's real concern um, all the time was what's the quality of my relationships with all the people that I actually interact with. And I've found the same of like, I don't know, it's just funny if you watch or, or you're with a friend or someone who's, who's talking about how important it is to be polite or how awful someone has been with them or like they're making some point about morality and you're at dinner with them and then they snap at the waiter or at the bus boy or just at anyone. And you're like, that was your opportunity <laughs> to demonstrate that moral virtue that you just <laughs> criticized someone else for not doing. It's like, it's just, um, you know, it's sort of like a unconscious hypocrisy. So that's, that's one of the things that I took from clay and just, a you know, a very like in a multidimensional sense of, it's just so important the way, like every single person that you interact with that interaction counts. And, and so be aware of that and value that and don't get too caught up in, in how many people, you know, like how many thousands of people it's like, who cares? What, what matters is how many individuals did you actually interact with and, and, and leave a positive impact on. It's funny. I feel like that lesson will get more and more important as time goes on and technology expands because dude, Nat, it drives me crazy when newer entrepreneurs obsess about how many subscribers they have on their email list. Mm -hmm. And they literally talk about numbers instead of people. I don't care yeah. if you have a thousand email subscribers. Can you tell me anything about even four of them? And it's a huge problem. And I mean, I think that's why Clayton made it to the top of his industry is because he understands that element. Absolutely. And number 10, find out what job is getting done and help people with that job that they are trying to get done, not the job you want to do. There's a whole other theory of, of Clayton's that he helped develop and get out there called the jobs to be done framework. Um, the quick story there is there was a consulting firm that was working with McDonald's and trying to improve their, um, their mil milkshake sales. And so they just thought of milkshakes as milkshakes and as desserts and did all this stuff to, 
you know, and I'm forgetting some of the details here, so forgive me if I get some of this wrong, but um, this is what I remember off off the cuff here is, um, yeah, like I said, they were only thinking of milkshakes as desserts in the way that you would traditionally think of desserts. And then they finally went into McDonald's to watch people um, buy milkshakes and to see what times of day that was happening and then talk to people who were doing that. And they found lots of the milkshakes were being bought in the morning and then around like three o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. They found out people were buying milkshakes for breakfast because they could um, consume it while they were driving to work and because it was thick, it lasted the whole Mm -hmm. drive. Whereas if they got a banana and got all over them and if they got just a soda, they would drink it too fast and they just wanted something to entertain them on the Hmm. drive. So it wasn't that they were getting a dessert. That wasn't the job that was being done. They were actually just getting some entertainment on the way to work. So that changed the whole way that the milkshake lived for that group of people. And then in the afternoon, they were being sold um, just for parents to give their kids something to shut them up while they were in the car. So again, like they're not buying a dessert. That's not the job that's happening. It's I'm trying to make my kids happy and make them quiet. So when you know that that's like what is actually happening, it just changes the whole way that you position a product and talk about it and even how they might innovate it or um, they might change the formula. I think he said they did something like for the morning group if they um, chopped up the fruit really small so that as they're sucking th- um, the milkshake through the straw, they'd get little surprise pieces mm. of fruit. So it's that kind of thing. Again, like a milkshake is not just a milkshake or, des- or dessert, the way you traditionally think about it, but it's the way that people are using it that will reveal what they're actually trying to do. That's interesting. And it definitely has very clear business ramifications. The company that comes to mind is Febreze. So when Febreze launched, the the founders of Febreze, the creators of Febreze, the formula, they were cat owners. And so they invented Febreze because they wanted to remove the cat smell from their houses. And when they went to market, they realized, why isn't this thing selling? And it turns out you thought that you were creating a product for cat owners to remove the cat smell from their apartments cat owners can't smell that cat smell. They don't know that their house smells like cats. And so Febreze had two choices. They could try to keep forcing on and convincing cat owners all across the United States that, hey, your house smells like cat. Or they could just say, wait, we've got to find the real use for this. We have to actually go to market in the way that the market wants this product. And in fact, what their marketing angle became that made Febreze into a multi-billion dollar product and industry is they transitioned it into Febreze gives your house that just cleaned scent. Mm -hmm. That's what people are looking for. I get it that you wanted to go to market for this one reason. It's not what the market wanted. And Nat, even your own business journey, I mean, I've known you for seven years now, and do you remember what you told me you did when we first met at that event in New York City? Um, probably, gamification yep. was probably somewhere in there. <laughs> 100%, it's the one word yeah. that came to mind. Yeah. And it reminds me, actually, I'll use an anecdote from some guy that I met from Colorado. He's, a, he's an entrepreneur, more on the beginning stages, and he always said to me when we first met, he said, man, I should have been a millionaire. And I said, what does that mean you should have been a millionaire? And he said, I was trying to sell AstroTurf in the 80s. And I was like, and what happened? He's like, I was before my time. And I was like, people didn't want AstroTurf back then. I don't care if you wanted to sell it, they didn't want it. You had no God-given right to be a millionaire. So yeah, really powerful lesson. I like that. For, say, say the phrase again, because I really like how succinctly it was summed up. 
uh, find out what job is getting done and then help people with the job they are trying to get done, not the job you want to do. I love that. Yeah, it's also a spin on another thing that he said is um, people will learn when they're ready to be taught, not when you're ready to teach them. Mm. And I think just about, you know, Clay's generosity and humility that that was something he recognized of like, you can't force people to go the path that you want them to go down. And just because you think something is a good idea doesn't mean it's going to work. So, yeah, absolutely. That was one of the big bitter pills that I had to swallow at first. I had this grandiose vision of like I had a rough time in the agency life and I thought, oh, man, it'd be so much better if if it could be gamified and if I could choose what projects I was working on and I wanted to fix all that. And then I was talking to small business owners about gamifying but it's like, what job are they trying to get? They're just trying to make money. Yeah. You know, and and what do they need to make money? They need marketing. They need yeah. to figure out how to present their products and services and get sales. And it took me like a probably, I mean, it, it took me probably a full year and a half to really just make that jump and like stop saying gamification, just say, I do marketing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and once I sort of surrendered into that of like, this is the job that people are trying to, they're just trying to make money. They're trying to have their businesses grow. And for the small business owners that I'm speaking with, like that's the job, that's where they're at right now. Maybe at some point in the future they can talk gamification, but where they were was marketing. So that, um, you know, Clay's just humble approach to life certainly helped there. And then number 11 bonus, don't go to jail. (laughs) (laughs) If there's any of Clay's books to read, the most accessible is called How Will You Measure Your Life? And part of his inspiration for writing that book was um, he's at a reunion of, of classmates and, and graduates from the Harvard Business School over the years and had the unfortunate re- realization of the number of his classmates um, or graduates of the school who were in jail for committing business fraud and other you know criminal and serious violations. And so we just started to look and wonder like, what is going on? And that kind of ties us back to that early principle of decide what your rules are and stick to them 100% of the time. Um, Because you just don't, yeah, you just don't want to leave or lead a life that seems really great, but then lands you in jail, you know, breaking your principles and going against the values of, of society. So be smart, draw lines, be humble, and don't go to jail. Heck yeah. Nat, thank you for taking the time to go deep into your brain archives and You're very welcome. figuring out some good lessons from Clayton to share with us. Rest in peace, Clayton. I know how much of an impact he's had on your life and millions of other people around the world. So Nat, you handle the sign off today. Thanks for an awesome episode. You're very welcome. I'm I'm grateful to do this. I you know, like I said, I, I feel that I owe so much to him for him being willing to take a chance on me and as it was my first client, I learned so much and felt like I, you know, under delivered just being a, a, a junior entrepreneur. And I always hoped that there'd be future opportunities to do some more projects for him. And so now it kind of shakes me up, um, that he's gone, but I believe that, uh, what he would want most from everyone is just to take the best of his ideas and keep creating good things. And that's what I have been doing and what I am committed to doing. So, I'm, you know, committed to honoring his, his legacy and continuing to grow good businesses and, and make a positive impact in the world based on the best of the ideas that he shared. So um, I appreciate him. I appreciate his family. And, um, I know there, I mean, his, his kids and, um, 
uh, his, uh, what am I saying? His in-laws, not his in-laws. What do you, what do you call your, I'm like blanking on, what do you, what do you call your kid's his spouses? Kids. Yeah, your daughter-in-law. Yeah, 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 his, yeah his kids and his in-laws and yeah, his wife and everyone. They're all tremendous people and, and will carry his torch and his legacy forward and do great things. So, um, you know, thoughts are with them and um, grateful for their generosity in allowing, um, you know, their father to share so much of his life with the world. So I'm grateful to them for who they are to allow him to have his ideas and support them and get them out there and, and then all the good things that, that they're doing as well. Um, to take his work and improve the world that is around them. So thank you, Christiansons, and thank you, Entrepreneur and Entrepreneur Community, and I recommend picking up any of Clay's books, and like I said, the most successful and certainly a good place to start is How Will You Measure Your Life? So with that, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll be back for Future Friday in two days. So talk soon. <laughs>